When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 7th of February. I'm Callum MacDonald, but more importantly, this is Kirsty Buchanan. Hello, Kirsty. Hello, Callum. Good to have you back in the land of the living. Yeah, I must make an apology for last week uh, where I... Well, this is today, Wednesday, marks three weeks since I started coughing. Uh, two weeks of antibiotics. Chest infection nearly ended me. It was it was truly awful. I have to say, though, I mean, chest infections clearly are serious and can be very serious. They're not the most serious thing in the world. I'm fully aware of that but I was just absolutely floored. So sorry that we weren't here last week, but we are back. Oh yeah, and uh, don't diminish it. I had an 11-week chest infection when I was at number 10. Um, And despite Brexit, as they say, that chest infection was probably the most traumatic thing that that happened to me the two years I was at number 10. Um, And it kept me out of all sorts of meetings because I just couldn't guarantee that I wasn't about to sort of collapse into a coughing fit. It It was really destructive and completely debilitating. Totally. Do you know the weirdest thing, just before we get into the actual politics of the week, the weirdest thing, and they're still a bit strange now, but I, I also seemed to get an ear infection, which was not painful, but resulted in both ears 
Rangers um, basically, well, feeling like they were blocked. They were not actually blocked. But I was basically, I've basically been hard of hearing for 10 days and it's just remarkably disorientating. I don't know. I, I couldn't hear people that were sitting next to me. It was the, it was the weirdest thing. Quite problematic for a, for a radio <laughs> I would have thought. It's fine, Chris. I never. What was that you said? Say I, that again. Speak up. Don't worry, I never listen to the politicians anyway. I just um, I just hash bash through the questions I've got for them. Uh, anyway, thanks for being with us on Whitehall Sources. Uh, lovely to be here to just go through the political news of the week. Now, bear in mind that we always love to hear from you. Uh, we're always very grateful for you listening. But have your say. I think particularly this week, there's a couple of things that might get you going. Um, Rishi Sunak and Piers Morgan, we'll talk about that. Liz Truss, the great comeback of Liz, in Liz We Truss. Uh, never, ever, ever forget how important Liz Truss is, was, will be. <laughs> we'll talk more about Liz Truss. Do you know what? It occurred to me while I was watching that, that she's the only woman that could take a drink, I think if this is the right way around, in a never have I ever been outlived by a lettuce game. You know? <laughs> I, ne- I never forget. I am a fighter and not a quitter. Indeed, Liz. Uh, more on Liz Trust to come. So yes, if you'd like to drop us an email, please feel free. Uh, we'd love to reopen the correspondence unit if you've got questions for Kirsty and our smorgasbord of guests that are coming up over the course of the next few weeks, then feel free to ask them. Or if you would just like to um, uh, to ask about uh, Liz Truss. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And have your say about her coming back, then feel free to do that as well. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. The Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the army. No, indeed. She's launching some sort of new conservative movement. Uh, Right, we'll talk about that in a second. Shall we start with Rishi Sunak speaking to Piers Morgan, as I'm sure Piers Morgan would love us to do? Uh, But it's not without cause, it has to be said. Um, A couple of things from the quite long interview with uh, Rishi Sunak. First of all, that he went back for more with Piers Morgan about a year after they first did a big long interview like this. Um, Second of all, I think is the bet. I think we need to talk about the bet because it's been the talking point of the week so far. Uh, Let me just play you what exactly happened. I'll bet you a thousand pounds to a refugee charity. You don't get anybody on those planes before the election. Will you take that bet? Well, I I want to get the people on the planes. Of course I want to get the people on the planes. thousand pounds. Right. I want to get the people on the plane. And there was a handshake, there was a bet made, and Kirsty, there has been a lot of commentary as a result of this around whether Rishi Sunak was right to take a bet on, you know, what is the kind of future and the fate of human beings' lives, whether Piers Morgan was right to do it. I mean, it is what Piers Morgan does, isn't it? The kind of stunt journalism stuff. Uh, what is your take on this in terms of, I suppose, I suppose there's, the, there's the kind of, the classic, isn't there? There's the perception of it. What damage has it done? It got everyone talking. Everyone's talking about Rwanda. I don't know. What, what's your own assessment? Um, okay. So I, I thought the choice of interview was interesting. Um, a lot of polling suggests that Whenever the general election is, it wouldn't be a good idea to run it as a kind of presidential election where Rishi Sunak is front and centre. I appreciate there's a brand problem with the Conservative Party at the moment, but there also is with Rishi Sunak now. He's, uh, in comparison with Keir Starmer, less popular. Uh, however, this was clearly kind of an attempt to... Uh, 
get more sense of personality about Rishi Sunak, you know, and and putting him up. I mean, look, they're not they're not daft at number ten. They know that Piers Morgan is uh, given to gotcha journalism, uh, but but actually, they also know the kind of audience they can reach through Piers and. Uh, I think the, this was an attempt to show the Prime Minister a, a bit more of a human face of the Prime Minister and also building on this kind of I'm tough, I'm resilient, things are, you know, things are rough right now, but, you know, I've got a plan, uh, I'm going to stick to the plan, etc., etc. Uh, and, I mean, we can talk more about the things that the bet overshadowed, yeah. uh, which I think are quite interesting about the refinement of the message that we are starting to see. Um, which is not actually a, a, a hollow one and that Labour needs to be uh, mindful of as the months go on. But the bet itself, look, was it gotcha journalism? Yes, of course it was. Should the Prime Minister have walked into it? No, he shouldn't have. Uh, there were any number of elegant ways he could have sidestepped that. Um, I think uh, the two rich men making a £1,000 bet, even if it is going to a good cause, uh, on the back of something so contested as this policy was crass on both sides. Uh, however, I do think that there's a lot of kind of smelling salts politics going on around this, just which doesn't really, uh, you know, doesn't really <clears throat> serve anybody other than to, to whip this up. Um, uh, was it was it the smartest move of the Prime Minister? No. Does it speak to a callous man who cares not one jot for humanity? No, of course it doesn't. It was a it was a it was a daft political move, and if he had a do over, he probably would have would have sidestepped it. Yeah, but I think that's what Pier- journalism is, right? Well, yeah, and I think you know when you watch Piers Morgan doing interviews, and he's got his own style, and it's not like he hides it, and so yeah, you know what you're getting into. It's just quite interesting in terms of how he sort of ramps up and builds up, and there's this almost breathless pace to how he's asking questions. You heard it in that clip actually, where he's sort of saying thousand pounds, thousand pounds bet. What a thousand pounds? It's not good. And he just kind of keeps going and keeps going rather than giving any space really for thought. There is a real intensity to how he, how he asks questions. And he does things in the interview, uh, like talking about his mum who, um, ended up in hospital, had a heart attack, went to hospital, you know, and had a pretty rough experience. Rishi Sunak has since phoned Piers Morgan's mum, I think, sent her flowers as well. It's worth saying that the Prime Minister's also said, uh, you know, he's not a betting man and he was kind of caught off guard and all that sort of stuff. So it's just interesting that, like, the intensity of Piers Morgan's interviewing style is not, is not a new thing, it's not an unknown thing. And to then be kind of caught by that as the Prime Minister, I think is difficult. Because you, you've almost, part of the battle of the interviews that you've got to try and keep the pace slower and keep it reasonable and try and keep it conversational. But in the face of what, you know, somebody who I accept is a, is a huge character. Yeah, look, I mean, A, it's easy for me to be wise after the event. Mm. I think that they were probably well aware of the risks and the rewards of an interview like this. And they weighed them up and thought on balance, it was probably worth it. I think with hindsight, it probably wasn't because yeah. the two stories that overshadowed it, which was the bet and the story about uh, a terrible story about Piers Morgan's mum had had a heart attack mm. and was kept waiting in A and E for uh, an extremely long time. Um, they overshadowed everything else. So, if the purpose of this is key message and key message delivery, and to flesh out a bit more of the Prime Minister's personality, 
I'm not, you know, there are other punchy kind of interview styles that you could have gone for that wouldn't have had quite such an element of gotcha journalism about yeah. it. I'm not entirely sure that that the on balance and it is an on balance kind of decision that I would have I would have gone with this one because he's such uh, a force of nature and as you say he's got a very combative style mm. um, and uh, he knows how to he knows how to grab a headline. Yeah, for sure, it has absolutely worked. I think you're right, Kirsty, to say you know what the bet has overshadowed because there is some actual kind of substance in this sit down with Rishi Sunak as well. Perhaps the um, the sort of most obvious headline, but important headline, is Rishi Sunak admitting the government's failing on this pledge to cut NHS waiting lists in England. Uh, Rishi Sunak saying the government had not made enough progress, saying that industrial action in the health service has had an impact. There's a, there's an ex, there's a sort of there's a there's a, an extent to which he's admitting the obvious. We know that they've failed, but it's interesting that in the kind of in the challenge from Piers Morgan that he kind of concedes that failure. Um, what's that about? Is that a kind of repositioning of messaging from the prime minister in some way? Uh, no, I think it's an acknowledgement of reality. I mean, sure. you know, when it start, when he made that pledge, I think uh, NHS waiting lists were at six point seven or something. Now there are you know more than seven million. Uh, it would be uh, ridiculous to claim anything other than that, that pledge has been uh, an abject failure in terms of 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 any coming anywhere near meeting it at the moment. Now. You can argue about what the causes are. Clearly, the government are quite keen to lay some of the blame at the ongoing strike action by junior doctors, and that mm. is uh, not unfair. Uh, there's also obviously, presumably, a post-pandemic surge of people who were too frightened to seek health care during COVID uh, and are more willing to come forward now. I'm going to, I think, talk about cancer specifically, but, mm-hmm. you know, i been reading obviously quite a lot about cancer waiting lists etc this week because of King Charles's own diagnosis uh, which has quite rightly um, shone a spotlight on something that should be in the news more often than it is and there's been an absolute surge of people not you know in the last few years coming forward for for, for diagnosis and I wonder whether they were staying away I had can- obviously you know I've had cancer twice mm. The first time I had breast cancer was during COVID, and I have to say it was wow. absolutely petrifying to go into hospital at that time. I mean, clearly nothing short of a life or death situation like cancer would have would have convinced me to go into into a hospital at the time. And I don't know if I ever relayed that story, but when I, the first time I went into the hospital, and there's two sets of lists, and there's no clear sign. One is just red, and one is green. Mm. But no explanation about what the red or green lifts. I mean, okay, intuitively maybe, but I was about to step into a lift and this guy physically grabbed me and pulled me back and said, don't go in that lift. That's the COVID lift. Oh, my word. I was about to step into a lift. It was quite literally dripping in kind of bad germs while my immunity system was at an all-time low. And this guy had like real fear in his face and that it really shook me. Yeah. Um, So... So, yes, yeah, so I think there's been quite a surge in it. Uh, and, yeah, I just – I don't think – what else can you do but say, no, this is this is something that, you know, we mm. haven't met, we need to work on. The other interesting thing I thought – I mean, I haven't watched all of it, I must confess. I've watched about right. half of it. Uh, <laughs> but an hour felt like too much of my time, <laughs> as much as I love to research for the podcast. Just enough, really. That's totally fair. I think there is some – there was some interesting for me as a kind of – political communications person that there's been some refinement of that message and actually watching 
uh, Rishi Sunak, obviously, in a long-form interview like that, people's personality comes out more. Mm-hmm. And if they have a kind of over-clunky emphasis on working key lines in, in short-form kind of interviews or, you know, in, in press conferences and stuff, which unfortunately Rishi Sunak does have. He has this very kind of clunky delivery of, here comes a key line, you know. Um, <laughs> actually, he weaves those much more... Uh, much it's, it's a much more light delivery in a kind of long form. They're there, but it's it's much you know it's a much smoother delivery. But I've also noticed the message is refined as well. So we've gone from like we have a plan, stick to a plan. You know, Labour would take us back to square one. To there's just been a, a little bit more refinement of it, so that it's actually it's now twofold. It's the peace of mind that people are looking for about a government that has a plan, and and this is an interesting one because this feels like a softer version of culture war, a renewed sense of pride in our country. Mm. So I think that is a new line that I've picked up. He said it a couple of times, more than a couple of times. So that's clearly another sort of key line to take, which is a softball delivery of culture war. And he also said about Keir Starmer, he doesn't have a plan. And I'm not entirely sure whether the you know going back to square one has been ditched because it's not quite right. And quite a few people might think that going back to square one it's not a bad place to be yeah. under current circumstances. But he doesn't have a plan. Will really, you know, if they stick with that, will resonate because it's true. Right now, I mean, yes, the manifesto is being put together. I think by the end of the week mm-hmm. is the deadline for uh, for different shadow ministerial teams to put forward what they want to see in the manifesto. And I'm not suggesting right now that it would be sensible for any opposition policy to put forward a great big panoply of policies for for the government to pick apart. Fine, I get that. However, their central plan, this twenty-eight billion pound green prosperity plan, uh, is still in all kinds of all kinds of a mess, and they're trying to move away from the money and insist the plan is still good. You know, we had to, you know, we are absolutely committed to the plan. Well, I might be committed to building a seven-bedroom mansion in the countryside with a swimming pool, but without the money, yeah. uh, <laughs> my my commitment is meaningless, right? So, I, I think they have a real problem with. And actually, at the moment, we've got uh, a leader of the opposition who the public are by no means sold on and no real sense of what they would do in government. You know, the thing about the Green Prosperity Plan was that it was it was a vision. It was a, you know, this is how we grow the country. This is how we get us out of our mess. We invest to grow. There's only a number of ways that you can you can come at an economy. You borrow more, mm-hmm. you invest to grow, you cut taxes. Well, we've seen Liz Truss's attempt to, you know, the whole let's cut taxes and, you know, cut taxes as a, as a means to grow. And that was uh, a debacle. In essence, Labour's Green Prosperity Plan was, you know, invest to grow. If that's not there anymore, how are they? going to cut debt? How are they eventually going to cut taxes? How are they going to tackle our productivity problem? How are they going to grow the economy and therefore use the growth to boost our public services? How are they going to do any of those things? And at the moment, I simply don't know. Mm. And nor do the voters. And whilst that's not a huge problem now, 
you know, if if the government continues to batter on on this, and you know, broadcasters and interviews start to pick up a little bit more, and they and the, and the dial will turn up on Labour and interviews. How are you going to tackle all these problems? Because if Rishi Sunak inherited, uh, I think Piers Morgan called it, you know, the biggest hospital pass uh, any leader's ever had, which is fair and probably accurate, mm. uh, probably outside of Margaret Thatcher, she her inheritance was. Was, was awful, uh, but this is probably arguably even worse. Keir Starmer's going to inherit the same, uh, the same kind of toxic legacy. And what is Labour's proposals for any of these big ticket questions? You know, we are on the edge of you know huge transitions in energy, in you know geopolitical power struggles, uh, in migration. And I don't even know right now if a Labour government, you know, wants to grow us, grow our economy, wants to cut taxes, wants to borrow more. I just don't know. Uh, and I don't think that that is a holdable position for a great deal longer. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. That brings us on to Wes Streeting, who is the Shadow Health Secretary. And yesterday, on Tuesday, I was interviewing Wes Streeting for Times Radio. And this was kind of uh, joined to the Times Health Commission. So this year-long look at the NHS and what needs to be done to save it, frankly, from the crisis that we all know it's enduring, experiencing, uh, etc. So Wes Streeting, who I spoke to yesterday, is really fascinating on kind of lots of these topics, Kirsty, because... He talked about, uh, you know, I was kind of putting it to him. I actually asked him, how, in, how intimidated do you feel by 
uh, Rachel Reeves and Labour's fiscal rules when it comes to what you need to do with the NHS. And, you know, he's a very good communicator, Wes Streeting, I would say. Having interviewed quite a number of the shadow cabinet, some of them are truly rubbish at communicating a message. Uh, you know, it just is the way it is. And I don't I don't necessarily understand why that is. But with Wes Streeting... rules have come. <laughs> with Wes Streeting, you just get the feeling that he has, whether you like it or not, he has a vision. He is able to communicate it. He is able to land some political blows subtly and explicitly and, you know, quite overtly at times when he's talking you through it. And it sounds reasonable and doable and like he's got a grip on what he's kind of saying. And you cannot say that for all of the, you know, for all of the cabinet or all of the shadow cabinet. He's a very skilled communicator. And I think that's that's the first thing I'd say. On the, on the fiscal rules thing, you know, he very much made the point that... Um, the whole shadow cabinet is behind this these fiscal rules. And so it's not like Rachel Reeves has got some reign of terror going on when it comes to spending money, but actually they're all kind of united on the approach. And he also says that when it comes to his brief, his remit to the NHS and health, the health service, he says it's not all about spending money, that actually reform is important too. Um, and so important, in fact, that he sort of said um, something quite interesting to uh, the Health the Times Health Commission, which was that anyone who sort of, you know, shudders at the idea of reform, he gets them out of the conversation because reform is so important. Um, so I just, I was quite fascinated by Wes Streesing's approach, his ability to communicate, as I say, his seemingly his vision. Um, I did try to ask him what would be, you know, line one of the health section of the manifesto. He said he would he would be disciplined severely if he told me. Um, so he didn't tell me that. But but you know, but the manifesto is on the way. Um, I don't know. Those were just my kind of perceptions. I've been. I think I've spoken to him maybe once before, never in person. But those were just kind of my perceptions of the shadow health secretary. Um, interesting. I mean, I agree with you. I think, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, Wes Streeting is one of the best uh, political operators we've got in this country, a, a brilliant communicator, uh, a man of real conviction about the role that he's got, mm. 100% uh, dedicated and devoted to delivering on that role rather than, you know, playing games about who's up and who's down, who's in and who's out. Yeah. Uh, I think he's, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really, really uh, convincing, committed uh, and charismatic politician. Secondly, hats off to the Times for doing this, for looking uh, in depth at a incredibly important area of public policy. Uh, I doubt there's many people in the country who would argue with the idea that right now the NHS is in crisis and on its knees uh, and what we would be looking for from an incoming government is something a little bit more sophisticated than cutting the waiting list. My own personal view uh, is that things have become so parlous within the NHS that actually what is needed is almost kind of a war fishing I think what we saw during COVID was the best. Uh, I mean, like there's there's plenty of criticisms about you know about how this came about, etc. Fine, but ultimately, what we saw was the best of government and industry working together to tackle some really critical issues. I would like to see some of that mentality and sense of urgency 
brought together uh, with whatever government we have, that you create some kind. I, I mean, God, I don't mean an, I don't mean a commission. The last thing we need right now is a you know two year talking shop, mm. but an urgent task force of industry, of tech, particularly of tech, because I think one of the issues we've got is about you know. Uh, a slowdown of of diagnosis. Uh, what are the uh, benefits of AI and the ability to use diagnostic software to cut waiting lists that way? Mm-hmm. How can we use industry better? You know, industry uh, is all about you know speeding efficiencies and delivery. So I would like a you know I would like to see some kind of task force of industry and government, almost like on a war footing. Mm-hmm. coming up with innovative ways uh, to reduce that that waiting list and that matters probably nowhere more so than it matters in in cancer waiting lists obviously the king's diagnosis uh, and his very brave decision to uh, be honest about that to encourage people to men particularly to check their bits yep um you know women obviously need to check their bits but you know testicular and, and prostate cancer. I, I don't know whether the king has either of these things sure. uh, because it's been clear he doesn't have prostate cancer, but he does. He has had a cancer diagnosis which has seen a surge in men uh, getting checked out. Uh, and one in two of us will have cancer at some point in our lives. Now, that's a slightly scary figure. It needs to be borne against the fact that, you know, we are an increasingly ageing population and, you know, a lot of that is linked to age and people will may die with cancer but not necessarily of cancer much mm. the same as sometimes people died with covid but mm. not of covid so i think that needs to be borne in mind but but actually the numbers of of people diagnosed with cancer in the last 50 years has tripled that is extraordinary and speaking as one of the 336,000 people that were treated last year for cancer and also one of the third of the people that wasn't treated within that two-month waiting time. I was diagnosed in January. My mastectomy wasn't till April. Uh, there is a literally life and death need mm. to find ways to speed up both diagnosis and treatment. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say, without giving too much away, I was talking to someone in an NHS hospital during the tr- my treatment and they said, if I really told you what was going on here, they would shut us down. Right. Now, in some senses, you know, that person didn't really need to tell me that because I could see from my with my own eyes that that person was on their knees with exhaustion from the sheer scale because you're speeding up diagnosis on one side. We're having weekend diagnostics. But on the other side, some you know you've got a, a limited amount of people that could that can treat you uh, at the other end. Uh, so I could see that, but I just you know, I don't think people have any conception of just how parlous uh, are you know the state of the health service is right now, and particularly around cancer. Yeah. So I would really like to see industry and the best of tech get together with government to try and resolve some of these issues and cut that waiting list it is uh it is war footing territory for me i think 
Yeah. Well, just as part of this conversation, I actually I want to let you hear from Wes Streeting, who himself had uh, kidney cancer that he's spoken very publicly about over the last couple of years. He is now cancer free. Um, but we wanted to ask him about the King's diagnosis of cancer. Uh, and so this is from my interview with him for Times Radio yesterday. Uh, it's a couple of minutes of Wes Streeting, but I think it's worth listening to. So uh, here is the Shadow Health Secretary. To go through that in the full glare of the public eye is bloody difficult. And I mean, I did a statement at the beginning of my cancer journey because I felt I had to and I'd be conspicuous in my absence and I'd start getting emails. Why weren't you at X vote? Why weren't you at Y community event? Uh, and, and you know, the, 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 the king will get that in bucket loads. And, and even, there've been, even people saying, well, can't we know what type of cancer? No, I don't think we can, actually. Mm. Three things went through my mind when the news broke on the six o'clock news last night. The first was, even when you get an early diagnosis, as thankfully I think the king has, it's still terrifying. And all sorts of anxieties rush through your mind. And it doesn't matter whether you are the king or anyone else. It's just a, it's a terrifying experience to have a cancer diagnosis. And the second thing is, I thought back to my own experience. I kind of knew that I was going to be okay. My prognosis was good. It was harder for my family, actually. And I think that for his family, they will probably feel the similar wave of emotions that my family felt, which was fear, concern, and also a bit of helplessness as well. You want to be able to do something. You want to be able to make it better. But ultimately, you have to trust in the care of the professionals and thirdly it's as anyone who's been through this and one in two of us will you know be affected directly by cancer in our lifetimes and and probably all of us in the country have been touched by cancer in our lives through someone we love to go through that in the full glare of the public eye is bloody difficult and i mean i did a statement at the beginning of my cancer journey because i felt i had to and i'd be conspicuous in my absence and i'd start getting emails why weren't you at x vote why weren't you at y community event uh and and you know that the the, the 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 king will get that in bucket loads and and even there've been even people saying well can't we know what type of cancer no i don't think we can actually mm. and i don't think we should and i think it's it, you know it's up to it's up to the king to decide how much he wants to share. And I think he's, he's owed, and the family are owed privacy as they deal with this as any other family would. And I think it's easy to forget that beyond the institution and the crown, they are ordinary people going through the same wave of emotions that other families going through cancer are. And I hope they take some comfort in the knowledge that right across the country and throughout the Commonwealth, there are millions of people who know what they're going through and are sending them unconditional support and love. Uh, that is Wes Streeting, who is the uh, Shadow Health Secretary, speaking, I think, um, oh, I don't know what the word is, but he's so reasonable and so, he bases that so, so inexperience and reflecting on the King's diagnosis, the impact it will be having on the King, on his family, and indeed on others who have experienced cancer themselves or who know someone who has. I don't know, I just thought it was a very articulate answer from Wes Streeting. Yeah, it was very human, very compassionate. Um, uh, he's right. You know, I know people in in public in the public eye who have kept their cancer diagnosis quiet 
Um, it is a very personal decision whether you want to share it or not. Um, and I mean, I did because I'm I'm an oversharer, <laughs> oversharer anyway. But uh, you know, it is a very personal decision, and it and it and it will take something out of him to have to you know, in some sense has become a kind of poster boy for, you know, going through cancer with sort of dignity and bravery, etc. cetera, uh, when actually at the bottom of it, I'm sure he's as uh, frightened uh, as anybody else that gets a diagnosis, almost regardless of prognosis, because, yeah. uh, you know, statistics are statistics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. my prognosis the first time around was... Ninety-three percent. I mean, it's, it's it's a lot lower now, uh, but it was ninety-three percent. And I just thought, well, that's seven percent of people aren't going to live for mm-hmm. another uh, five years. And look, I was lucky; I was diagnosed early the first time around, etc. But this time around was quite different and utterly, utterly terrifying. And to be able to relate to that on a very human level, I think, is important. And it struck me in in a week when the Justice Minister, Mike Frears, had to stand down because of uh, extreme threats to his life and attacks, I think, on his office because of the views that he holds about the Israel-Palestine conflict. I just, you know, somewhere along the line, we've forgotten that, you know, people in the public eye are human beings too, that the vast majority of people that go into politics do so because they want to make life better for people Uh, and to treat them uh, as, as kind of the totems of everything that is wrong with the world. Uh, I think is is appalling, and, and and that's what struck me the most about that is just the recognition that, you know, at the heart, whether you're a king or an MP of any political party, uh, or you're, you know, you're me, Joe Schmo on the street. You know, we all have the same experiences in life. We all worry about our families. We all worry about crime. We all want an NHS that is great. We all think nurses deserve you know, uh, more pay and we worry about, you know, overworking uh, people within the NHS, etc. We all worry about these things mm. because we are all basically, uh, to coin uh, a Joe Cox phrase, you know, there's more in common. Yeah. Uh, and this is what I find so parlous about the state of, of politics in this country, which will probably bring us night niche neatly, sorry, <laughs> teeth in, um, to talking about the pop cons. Uh, yes. A few years ago, a few years ago, uh, I met the great American pollster Frank Luntz. Uh, now, if you're a political nerd like me, Frank Luntz is the closest thing you've got to a rock star. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm not very fangirly. I didn't ask for his autograph, nor did oh, I ask no. for a selfie with him. But um, but he came over to do a tour with a single message, which was in essence. What is happening in America is coming over to Britain and you mm. need to be very afraid. And I thought at the time, much as I uh, admire Frank Luntz, I thought, mm, up to a point that's true, but then we will draw a line in the sand because after all, we are British uh, and ultimately we have quite a large dollop of cynicism about us that I don't think American 
people do should make a sweeping generalization about all Americans. <laughs> uh, but, you know, ultimately, we, we just we don't go that far. We don't take things that far. Uh, and then I look at politics today and I think, oh, actually, Frank Lance might have a point. And mm. yeah, it's increasingly alarming, isn't it? Okay. So, yes, on to the pop, the pop cons. Uh, which I think we have to call them. Apparently, I don't. I don't really know. Uh, this is Liz Truss, who is back this time with a conference called Popular Conservatism. It's bringing together voices in the Conservative Party and aims to deliver popular conservative policies. Uh, there was a big event in London this week at which Liz Truss spoke, and because we always like to hear Liz Truss speaking, here is Liz Truss speaking at PopCon. And I believe the fundamental issue is that for years and years and years, and I think it goes back two decades, conservatives have not taken on the left-wing extremists. Now, these people have repurposed themselves. They don't admit they're socialists or communists anymore. They say they're environmentalists. They say that they're in favor of helping people across all communities. They are in favour of supporting LGBT people or groups of ethnic minorities. So they no longer admit that they are collectivists, but that is what their ideology is about. It's all about taking power away from people and families and giving power to the state or unaccountable bodies. And the problem is that conservatives have tried to appease these people. We've tried to triangulate. Conservative cabinet ministers have met Greta Thunberg and asked her what she wanted. We've had conservative governments legislating for self-identification. Now, I'm pleased to say we've stopped that legislation now. But this is a conservative government allowing people to define themselves whether or not they're a man or a woman, something which we know is a biological fact. Some of the greatest hits there from Liz Truss. Uh, this is she's trying to rally right-wing Tory MPs. Um, she's trying to apparently galvanise these secret conservative forces. Uh, this is described as a new movement aiming to restore democratic accountability to Britain and deliver popular conservative policies. It's trying to pressure Rishi Sunak, basically, into perhaps moving in a more hardline way um, on issues some of which you heard there. Immigration is up there as well. Um, left-wing extremists, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg saying the age of Davos man is over. Ex-Tory Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson arguing that British people don't care about net zero strategies tackling climate change, apart from the, quote, odd weirdo in the corner. What do you make of the popular conservatism movement, Kirsty? Uh... <laughs> I I don't want to swear, so I won't. <laughs> uh, but what a load of old BS. I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> look, a couple of things here. One, it's not the popular conservatives. It should be called the populist conservatives because mm. this is all straight out of Trump's playbook. Um, uh, great. Uh, with all the kind of devi deliberately divisive rhetoric uh, that we saw there. 
uh, it's interesting to note that the only thing that hasn't gone on a journey with Liz Truss is her ability to speak uh, uh, with any great <laughs> with any great style. Uh, but wow, this woman has gone on a journey from you know liberal uh, you know liberal Democrat student who yeah. advocated um, you know getting rid of the monarchy and being able to legalize cannabis to going full on Trump towards the end of her career. Look, what I think might be going on here is something a little bit more than just the fight for the heart and soul of the Conservative Party. You know, I've had, you know, people I know in the Conservative Party suggest to me that post an election defeat, that you might very well see a split in the Conservative Party. And uh, it's you know, and I, and I thought this was a bit fanciful until I saw that Pop Cons uh <laughs> concert yesterday actually just looking at some of the you know the backers that that, that used to be Tory backers that were there the fact that N- Nigel Farage was there mm. uh, allegedly in his capacity as a GB News journalist as a GB News presenter yeah so I take issue with the word journalist yeah um uh, although you know we should talk another time about you know the interplay between uh, which again is a, is a kind of Trump playbook, you know. How do you reach people now? Um, mm-hmm. Do you reach them through traditional parties, or do you merge media uh, and politics into one to provide a new, wider kind of platform? Uh, but he was asked, you know, Nigel Farage was asked, well, you know, w- would you join the Tory party? He said, no, 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 no. Th- these people will, you know, will no doubt join reform. And I wonder whether that is what is mm. what is going on here, that post-election defeat, either you will see this kind of uh, populist conservative jump ship and form a, uh, you know, and either join reform or form a new party. Yeah. Uh, or what is left of the One Nation Conservatives will just get completely consumed, and and all we have seen uh, over the last where are we now? Since twenty ten, mm-hmm. you know, is is this insurgent right getting ever more powerful uh, to the point where I think you know for the first time I'm prepared to think that actually a split within the party is not beyond the realms of possibility because right. I just don't see how a party that split by ideology uh, can hold together anymore. Uh, this is so far away from one nation conservatism. This is so far away from, you know, Cameron and Osborne, etc. You know, I once mm-hmm. interviewed Cameron and I was kind of mealing, you know, being a bit mealy mouthed about it. And I said, well, you know, ultimately, because I couldn't work out what, what he, you know, what drove him. Was he really just a kind of Tim Nice but dim or. <laughs> was there kind of any underpinning, you know, political philosophy behind his views? And he said, well, I consider myself a principled pragmatist and don't knock principled pragmatism. Uh, And, you know, looking at at this popcorn event, I think, you know, those words kind of echoed in my ears. Ideology is, uh, whilst it gives you focus, it it, it also creates, you know, you pop, that kind of level of ideology in the political discourse we have at the moment, uh, I just don't see how it does anything other than make society more divided. Mm. Um, uh, and the last time I checked, the idea that the Conservative government over the last few years has been trying to triangulate and appease the the uh, extreme left, kind of what government was she looking at? Um <laughs> 
uh, I mean, apart from it being, you know, borderline offensive what she was arguing, I just mm. I think it's just wrong. Um, but I yeah, but but more than anything, like I say, it looks to me seeing you know Nick Candy there was a big donor for the Conservative Party. Seeing Nigel Farage there, um, I just think we might be seeing the beginnings of the end for what we all know as the Conservative Party. Who knows? Very interesting. That would be huge. That would be absolutely huge. Is it fair to describe your assessment as withering? Is that, is that, is that the word I can use? Yeah, I don't see how anybody, you know, could be anything other than withering with it. I'm, right. You know, we're taking political lectures from uh, a woman that, you know, trashed the economy, hmm? that uh, was outlived by a lettuce, uh, that has left millions of people in this country, and I do mean millions of people, paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds more on their mortgage yeah. because she wanted to, you know, inflict her petri dish political ideology on the whole nation. Uh, yeah, it's just extraordinary. And the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg is the answer to uh, what this country needs is just, I'm sorry, it's just laughable. I don't, it almost looks like some sort of comedy skit. I, I went to see uh, American Fiction last night, which is a film about a guy, you know, a black author who gets so fed up with his literature not, you know, not getting the recognition it, it deserves because mm. he doesn't write about black issues that he writes a piss take book yeah. uh, about growing up in the ghetto and pretends that he's, you know, a, you know, a fugitive from justice and stuff. He writes it as a joke and it's taken seriously and it wins all these literary awards and stuff. And it feels a little bit like that. You know, it's almost like a kind of joke, uh, you know, political event, except that it's not. It's and real life. You know, it's IRL. And I just, I think about Frank Luntz and me thinking, oh, you know, no, Frank, I don't think so. We're British. It's not going to happen there. And then I looked at that that event and I thought, gosh, uh, this is why Frank Luntz is a brilliant <laughs> I think he'd be right. There we are then. Your thoughts welcome on Popcorn. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, another episode done for you. Rishi Sunak, Piers Morgan, Wes Streeting, Liz Truss, Kirsty Buchanan and Callum MacDonald. What a lineup! Uh, thanks very much for being with us. <laughs> and uh, we will talk to you, <laughs> talk to you again uh, with great delight on next week's podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.